Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Remember to go check out the website at dormroomhistory.com slash the history of China. Also, again, thank you to all of those that have donated. I will start shouting people out now after a few emails came in, giving me a green light to do so. So, well, a special thank you to Amanda from Spain for the very generous donation this week. Gracias. Thank you. But don't forget to follow the show if you haven't already and to rate the show five stars if the service you use for podcasts even gives you the option to do so. But ah, to be 22 out of college, I have made yet another move. This time for good, though. I've moved again. The history of China is now employed and just again moved back across the country as soon as I just moved to the other side, and I'm now finally settled into the new place. No, I won't give my address out, but I can reveal that the build-it-yourself furniture is hard. No, it's not marching a thousand miles to fight the Xiongnu hard, but now I have a desk, and the internet is set up, and I can finally get this episode out. Ikea, you should sponsor me. But I mentioned last time that we were looking at a supplemental or two. Maybe one, maybe two, maybe none. But after a few emails remarking on the favorable view of episodes that jump away from the linear history in the form of Emperor style, I thought, well, this is a good chance to get an episode out that touches on some of the other things that we might not have had enough time to really dive into. So, with Emperor Wu just recently gone, I think it's time to talk about a few things here. And we are going to start with, you probably could have guessed, Sima Qian, because he is now gone. About actually the same time Emperor Wu dies. And my close listeners will remember, he's sort of been one of the most prolific sources we have, if at times the only one. And also, I will be jumping the gun here by about a hundred years, maybe a little less, but I think it's important to start touching on Buddhism in China before we pick up the main thread again, just to have it in the back of your mind. And lastly, with all my friends struggling with MCAT studying and LSAT studying, which I don't have to do, thank you, but standardized tests were, yeah, created in the Han Dynasty, and we're going to touch on that too. So, without further ado, The History of China, Episode 36. Sima Qian, Buddhism, and Standardized Tests. Ancient history is very interesting. I mean, I think so, and if you're listening still on episode 36, you must think so too. Even to just read, it paints a picture for us of a time long forgotten. A society and people with, if we are lucky, only a small, small bit of lasting cultural influence over us today. Some with none. Ancient history, the way it's portrayed, I mean, it has themes and narratives that make the classically boring dates, names, small causes and effects into something that just jumps off the pages. Sometimes, probably, almost certainly not true at times, but it can be filled with religious overtones, cultural symbols of that time, metaphors, if not just the supernatural. 
Obviously, it is not like reading about histories in the modern or even early modern world. The archaeological database is smaller. And of course, most importantly, the contemporary history written sometimes doesn't even exist. So the histories that were written at that time, they just didn't make it to us today. 99% of all of it is gone. We often have to make do with ancient people writing about things that were still even ancient to them. And so one of the sources from ancient China that was simply prolific, and there is no point dragging out the suspense, you know who he is, it was Sima Qian. Born in maybe 145 BC, but maybe 135 BC, in Zuo Pingyi, which is in modern Shaanxi province, and it's through his father, Sima Tan, that we see where Sima Qian would get his basis for histories and the basis for his later work. We know that in and around 136 BC, Sima Qian's father, Sima Tan, was appointed to Grand Historian, or Tai Shi in Chinese. That sounds like quite the post, Grand Historian, but it really didn't rank very high in the long list of government posts that existed in the Han Dynasty. It sounds quite grand, but it was lower, and sure it was lower, but it meant that Sima Tan would travel with the emperor. He thus would be there for rituals. He would log what happened in the dynasty that day and would also log what happened at the imperial court. But the word historian in the title, Grand Historian, can be a bit misleading. It's a translation. Yes, he writes history, but the title could equally have been called Grand Astrologer. He would indirectly, literally log history, which for us now is invaluable, but the main function of this post was to make a calendar for the emperor and essentially look at it and be able to explain which days were going to be auspicious and which days were going to be inauspicious. What does that mean for our main character here, though, Sima Qian? It means that he was inundated at a young age with reading. You know, my dad loves classic rock music, and I became inundated with it, and now I play guitar, and I love it. So Machian's dad was the grand historian, and so he's inundated with these concepts, with these themes, with these works, which, without a printing press, are sometimes very hard to get your hands on. The literacy rate of the ancient world is as high as you think it would be. It's high in Han Dynasty China, but compared to modern days, it's extremely low. But so he's inundated with reading, with the Confucian ideals, and according to himself, could read the old writings by the age of 10. Speaking of my dad, he likes to joke with people that I didn't know how to read at all until I was 10. That is not true. But it is in those Confucian ideals that we really understand Sima Qian. Just as how we had to understand Taoist principles to really understand Sun Tzu in the art of war, it's the same for Sima Qian, but this time with Confucian ideals. These worldviews and philosophies help guide why and how he actually went about doing his writing. For starters, 
he considered all of his histories as an act of filial piety to his father, Sumaten. Which is obviously an important facet of Confucianism. But I digress, we will get to that in a second. In 126 BC, and this date gives credence to the 145 BC birth year theory, but in 126 BC, Sima Qian traveled around the entire Han dynasty. Well, the entire dynasty at the time. As you might guess, 126 puts us before the real big conquest flurry of Emperor Wu, but alas, I digress. On these travels, Sima Qian visited all over, seeing all the ancient sites in important places and ending in Qufu, the birthplace of Confucius himself. And while there, Sima Qian stayed a little bit and studied such topics. And it is in 122 BC, after his personal travels exploring the dynasty, that he was made a palace attendant for the Han government. The role was similar to his dad's in that it entailed he traveled with the emperor, but Sima Qin's role was solely for the inspection of the dynasty. So he wasn't there looking for auspicious or inauspicious days. He was there to really just aid and assist the emperor's inspections of everything. And as we know, Emperor Wu inspected a lot. So for 12 years, he did just that. And nothing super notable happens in Sima Qian's life, but it's what happens 12 years later after starting this post in 110 BC that wouldn't change the course of history, but would instead make sure the course of history was written, which I guess does change it in some ways. In 110 BC, Sima Qian's father, Sima Tan, was dying. Now, it's alleged that this illness, or this decline in health, was caused from, quote, distress of not being invited to attend the imperial feng sacrifice, end quote. I mean, that's probably an exaggeration or not true, but regardless, realizing his time was coming to a close, he summoned his son Sima Qian back home. And at this point, Sima Qian was out west dealing with barbarian hordes. Sima Tan, Sima Qian's father, throughout his life, was trying to make a work that followed the annals of spring and autumn. You, re you remember that? Oh, that takes us back a lot of episodes. But that was probably the first true written, or at least surviving written account of ancient Chinese history. And two quick side notes on that. One, that is important to note, that he was making a work based on and following the annals of spring and autumn. Because these historians and their writings about events that were much older than even them, it shows that they were not making it up at a whole cloth, or always from hearsay or picking up oral histories as they went around the dynasty. These ancient historians often cited sources, and often it is in these works that cite the sources that we know anything at all about the now long-lost original source. Socrates being only known through Plato, you get my drift? It is through this that we can see a lot of older histories because they were cited. 
But also, secondly, it shows the filial piety aspect mentioned earlier. Somatan had created an outline for this history. So there is no real theory that Somatan wrote much, if any, of the actual finished projects Somatan would complete. But it was with these notes, this outline his father made, and this dedication to his father that propelled Sima Qian to spend the next decades working on his famous work, the Shi Ji, or to English speakers, the records of the Grand Historian. Hey, wait, time out. Sima Qian wasn't the Grand Historian, right? Because now isn't he just a palace attendant? Is he naming it after his dad? Well, no. Sima Qian didn't simply give up on life and do nothing else but make his compiled history. Instead, he ended up assuming the role as Grand Historian in 105 BC. Busy man, but a job, five classes, and a podcast? He could never. Kidding. But that brings us to an event I mentioned earlier the castration of Sima Qian at the hands of Emperor Wu. Okay, not literally at the hands of, yeah, okay, I digress. However, in 99 BC, there was that Li clan disaster. To jog our memories, Li Ling and Li Guangli went out to fight the Xiongnu, and they lost, and were taken alive as prisoners. Yikes. So buckle up for a mix of court politics, family dynamics, and an all-powerful supreme ruler. Essentially, Emperor Wu declared that this defeat was Li Ling's fault, and that Li Guangli was not to blame. As we discussed a few episodes ago, and in the last episode, Li Guangli was no Wei Qing. He was no Huo Chubing. Li Guangli was most likely simply incompetent. But Li Guangli was Emperor Wu's brother-in-law. Ah, you see where this is going? So blaming Li Ling was convenient for many reasons that you could probably discern yourself. And it was only Sima Qian who stood up and defended Li Ling. Bad move. Emperor Wu takes that as not a rational defense and logical stance trying to understand what went wrong in the battle, but instead, the all-powerful emperor takes it as a personal attack against Li Guangli and sentences Sima Qian to death. Is Li Guangli, though, viewed as incompetent because our history is derived from Sima Qian? Sima Qian had no personal connection with Li Ling. Thus, defending him may come from an actual logical place. He had no dog in the fight. But it does make you wonder. But I will stop there because while I can poke holes in any era's history that was written by one person or one regime, it is all we have. So have a critical mind. But if you're too critical with ancient history, you will never get past page one. So Sima Qian defends Li Ling for no 
other reason, then probably there's a logical understanding behind that. He was not a family member, he had no stake in this, and he had no stake against Li Guangli. But he's sentenced to death. And in the Han Dynasty, the only way to get out of a death sentence was to pay up. A lot of money. Or, and this is what I'm getting at, you can be castrated. Yikes. The death penalty in the Han Dynasty at this point now looks like quite a nice way to raise state revenue. How much would you pay to save your life? Or your... Yeah. Those. Sima Qin was not loaded. He was a low-level imperial official. He was the Grand Historian. And I already told you how it ended. He opted for castration in 96 BC. Now, of note, the castration was like the Roman voluntary suicide punishment in a way. Scholars or nobles who were castrated were disgraced. And thus, the de facto next step for someone who was disgraced like this was suicide. And it was common and often. But Sima Qian, who still at this point had not finished his records of the Grand Historian, refused to kill himself. I mean, we were this close from the records of the Grand Historian not being finished if he was executed or if he had killed himself. It would have been incomplete. And this is what's fascinating. We have an actual letter written by Sima Qian, saved by the person who received it. And this person will come up, so in the interest of not adding too many names, we're not going to add him yet. But in an actual letter he himself wrote, he wrote, Pardon me, I still struggle to read characters, but essentially what it says, according to a real translation, is if even the lowest slave and scullion maid can bear to commit suicide, why should not one like myself be able to do what has to be done? But the reason I have refused to bear these ills and have continued to live, dwelling in vileness and disgrace without taking my leave, is that I grieve that I have done things in my heart which I have not been able to express fully. And I am ashamed to think that after I am gone, my writings will not be known to posterity. Too numerous to record are the men of ancient times who were rich and noble and whose names have yet vanished away. It is only those who are masterful and sure, the truly extraordinary men, who are still remembered. End quote. Wow. Real words from Sima Qian. He was not going to let himself fade away into the histories. He was going to make sure he was remembered. And after prison and after the castration, he became a court eunuch. And in around 94 BC, the dates are iffy, he finished the work. His death is unknown. But after his history, the records of the Grand Historian was finished, 
he practically vanishes from the historical record. Sima Qin's record of the Grand Historian was the standard for historians for ages to come in China. His structure and detail was unmatched to that point. It was a whole new thing. You think Herodotus was the godfather of history? That's great. And to be fair to Herodotus, Sima Qin was not making an oral performance. This was a written document, and it provided a foundation for those to come. The Book of Han, which we will start citing, I mean immensely, would come later, and it was directly influenced by the records of the Grand Historian by Sima Qian. The records of the Grand Historian, to break this down real quickly, it had 10 tables, 12 basic annals, 8 treatises, 30 house chronicles, and 70 biographies. Sima Qian died a true believer of Confucian ideals, but another belief system would appear in China for the first time very soon after he died. Buddhism. Disclaimer. This is not the definitive look into Buddhism on this podcast. We will have a whole episode probably for it in the near future. As Buddhism though, will continue to evolve and grow and change throughout the history of China. So I'm not going to just plug in the entire philosophy and religion right here. It would be inappropriate to do so for history and for time's sake. For example, and this is a reason why we're not diving too deep, the first Buddhist scriptures to be directly translated into Chinese from those in Indian languages wouldn't occur for over a century, happening in 148 CE. But it is around this time, 84 AD BC, that a new belief system begins to proliferate rapidly outside of the borders of the Han Dynasty. Buddhist belief originated in the Ganges Valley in India, in the range of the 6th to 4th century BCE, and it would eventually spread across India, and eventually, as you could guess by now, all over Asia. And it would soon enter China in a variety of different forms from the south, from the southwest via Tibet, and over the northwest. And we'll get into all of that. There's a lot of theories on which one was first. And let me say, this would become Chinese Buddhism. It is slightly different in a few areas from Buddhism of India or Buddhism of Tibet. And there's a reason why it is called Chinese Buddhism or in Chinese, Han Quan Fu Jiao. That Han in that name is, yes, that Han. I think just putting it on our radar here is important because this is one of the more fascinating and long-lasting things to come out of the Han Dynasty. And it not only affects China and the Han Dynasty and the way Buddhism is practiced and understood, the Han Dynasty were the most powerful empire slash kingdom or whatever you want to call it in East Asia. And that influence would spread Buddhism to the Korean Peninsula and into Japan. So we are within a hundred years of Buddhism proliferating around and in China and thus later into Korea and Japan. So I think it's a good thing for us to keep it in the back of our head that Buddhism is coming. It's going to be different, but it's coming. Anyway, 
The last thing today is standardized testing. Now, no, don't stop listening. I know, don't stop listening just because I said the word standardized test. I get it. No one enjoys them. And this does directly impact everyone. Heck, I just got out of college where I needed to take standardized tests to get in. I have friends studying for the MCAT, the GMAT, and LSAT. Where did these standardized tests come from? Who invented this awful, arduous process where we waste so much time filling in bubbles? Like so many things that are great to this world, it came from, you guessed it, ancient China. China would perfect the testing system in the centuries to come, and eventually such testing would actually inspire, literally, traders and travelers, so much so that they would bring these ideas back to Europe, and the rest is history. Circling bubbles in a cinder block high school, trying desperately to get into college. It's a loose connection, but we'll roll with it. Anyway, it's important now because the Chinese's long history of standardized tests really starts around this time in the Han Dynasty. It was under Emperor Wen and later Emperor Wu that standardized testing takes its first foothold in China. You have all heard me mention how this emperor or that emperor promoted some form of increased meritocracy. It's almost been a buzzword. And in 165 BC, Emperor Wen took that idea of meritocracy up a notch with the introduction of the now-famed civil service exam. Now, this is not the final version of it. It would evolve and change. But even as emperors before him tried to increase meritocratic functions, none had made candidates sit through any academic examination. And Emperor Wu in 136 would further introduce more tests. And this time, and this will have a longer impact, they had a heavy emphasis on Confucian texts. However, these tests were more about sorting out already recommended candidates than as a recruitment method. You weren't just taking the tests to get recruited. You were taking the tests more likely than not because you were already recruited or had a connection or a father or an uncle, but now just needed to be classified. Nothing is perfect, but it is a clear step and a literal version 1.0 of the Chinese civil service exam that they would soon use directly for recruitment. So, if someone you love is struggling with a standardized test, tell them, thanks, Han Dynasty. And that is a pretty good place to leave off. An episode that fills in the gaps. I like it. Next time, we pick up the main thread after the death of Emperor Wu. And again, thank you so much to all of those of you who have donated. Thank you to those that email me and message me and that have followed and rated the show. These little things seem like nothing to you guys, but they mean a lot to me. My life's going through a lot of changes now. I'm busy. Well, everything's changing. And it's nice to know that people really love the show. So, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next time 
on the history of China.